Hey guys, I offer you a warm welcome to episode number 10 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You know the score by now. As ever, I'm Paul, the host and true crime enthusiast of the title. You guys are you, and massive thanks for joining me and listening in again this week. Thanks also to those of you responsible for taking time out to leave me new and kind iTunes reviews. It all helps, so you're all great guys. Thanks very much. Hope everybody's okay and had a good week, and if not, well, I hope it picks up for you real soon. So Charles Manson died recently. I wouldn't normally comment on infamous murderers who die, but as he's an iconic figure in any study of true crime, I feel like I've got to say something. His death is long overdue in my opinion. This was a monstrously evil and manipulative man, and for all those people who still even now retain a morbid fascination or hero worship with him, and there must be some surely, then I would advise this. The pictures from the Cielo Drive crime scenes are available online. They make for shocking and graphic viewing, and it should be remembered that this horror is all down to this man. I'd advise people who feel like he is some sort of messiah to just take a look at him and then see if he's still the same charismatic figure you think he is. Rot in hell, Manson, and let's not waste any more time on that scumbag. I came across a great new podcast this week, another fledgling one but one I'm sure will grow in leaps and bounds and it's called the Asian Madness Podcast. Now just because I choose to cover UK crime here on my own podcast, it doesn't mean that I don't have an interest in cases that occur from all around the world. There are so many North American podcasts that I'm spoilt for choice really and there's a trio of excellent ones from down under. I'm sure you all know the three that I mean but only a scant few that cover other continents. So I found this one that covers crimes, mysteries and all sorts from the continent of Asia. So straight away there's a hell of a goldmine of cases there. Again, the ones featured are not ones that I'm familiar with at all, so that's always a bonus. It's only a couple of episodes in, but it started well. The production's fabulous and the host seems so comfortable and down to earth in her delivery and it's become yet another on my must listen to list. I hope it continues and goes from strength to strength. It deserves to. And you can find and follow the Asian Madness podcast on Twitter, Instagram and the usual platforms. And a link to the podcast will be in the show notes for this week's episode. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is the end of my chopping and changing as it's been for the past couple of weeks because it was starting to give me a headache. And it is the episode promised two weeks ago. This week's case focused upon goes back to the early 1970s to Worcester, a city in England about 30 miles south of Birmingham. Worcester was the site of the final battle in the English Civil War. Conflict that is, not the great song by The Clash. And every three years, it's host to the Three Choirs Festival, which lays claim to be the oldest music festival in Britain. Thanks Wikipedia. And it is also the place where Jon Snow himself, actor Kit Harrington, went to secondary school at Worcester's Chantry High School. Which was a bit of a waste of time because, as everybody knows, Jon Snow knows nothing. But Worcester also has its infamous people too, and this week's episode focuses upon one of them. The episode this week contains descriptions of violence that some of you guys may find disturbing. As I'm sure is familiar on the podcast by now, I've tried to convey this in a way that does not detract from the story as I believe it's important for the full details to be expressed but I have tried to be sensitive also. 
The focus of this episode, the subject, is one of the most reviled killers in British criminal history, but it's not one that will be at the forefront of any reader of true crime's mind. Indeed, he has served 44 years in prison for his monstrous crimes, and has applied for release on at least nine separate occasions. However, this has been refused each time due to the wave of public hatred that still to this day remains against him. His crimes rank up alongside the crimes of the Moors murders in sheer horror and revulsion, yet until recently his name was relatively unknown and largely forgotten bar within the locality of where the crimes were committed. Please join the true crime enthusiast as we examine the case of the killer who is dubbed by the British press and the British public as the real Friday the 13th killer, or more commonly, the Monster of Worcester. David Anthony McGreevy was born in the large seaside town of Southport in Merseyside on the 24th of September 1951, the second eldest of six children born to Bella and Thomas McGreevy. The McGreevy family were a forces family, and often moved around depending on where Thomas, who was a sergeant serving in the Royal Signals, was posted to. As you can imagine, this is often hard on forces children, uprooting all of a sudden and having to make new friends and go to new schools, perhaps even in a different country, especially in the days where there was no instant messenger or Facebook or anything like that. However, thousands of children do the same thing without any lasting damage, and there is nothing in McGreevy's early years to suggest that the constant moves had caused any underlying problems with him. His mother was interviewed years later following his arrest and said that David was at his happiest when the family was stationed in Germany. She further said that the only ever instance concerning McGreevy that gave cause for the family to have any concern was when the then teenaged McGreevy stole her shopping money, left the family home, which at the time was in Cardiff, and went off on a day trip to Liverpool. In 1967, McGreevy left school and achieved his lifelong ambition by enlisting in the Royal Navy. It was in the Navy, however, that McGreevy's first developed problems with alcohol. When drinking, he was known to be surly and to have a violent temper that could flare up without warning or with minor provocation. At his first naval posting, HMS Eagle in Portsmouth, Colleagues of McGreevy were struck by the arrogance and cockiness of the young rating, and he was frequently subject to disciplinary measures. The defining incident of his naval career occurred in the late 1960s when he was stationed at RNAS Brodie in Pembrokeshire, when he was sentenced to 90 days detention for negligence in his duties. One night, McGreevy, who was working as a steward in the mess hall, had turned up for his duty evening watch drunk and in an agitated state. Whilst on watch, he broke into an officer's wardroom and started a fire in a waste paper bin, then raised the alarm, claiming when assistance came that he wasn't responsible, but a sole eyewitness to the unexplained fire. The Navy, however, did not believe this fallacy and court-martialed him. He escaped being charged with arson, but the negligence charge spelt the beginning of the end of his naval career. Whilst in detention, his commanding officer ordered that he undergo psychiatric evaluation. The results of this evaluation were never relayed to McGreevy's parents, nor has ever been made public in the aftermath of his crimes. In January 1971, whilst shore-based at Portsmouth Dockyard, McGreevy began writing to, and quickly became besotted with, 
a young woman named Mary who was the sister of a fellow seaman. The letters exchange regularly twice weekly between the pair and by April 1971 McGreevy had proposed to Mary just a short week after meeting her for the first time. Mary had debilitating health issues and was not liked by McGreevy's parents but the arrogant young man would listen to nobody but himself and threw himself enthusiastically into their relationship. It seems to have been a relationship more in his mind than in reality as there are no reports of the couple spending any significant period of time together except for a couple of long weekends in June and July 1971. Yet McGreevy remained besotted with her, and in August of that year, he was finally discharged from the Navy. His career hadn't been marked due to the incident with the fire. This devastated McGreevy, and with nowhere else to go and no prospects, he returned to live in his parents' home in Worcester. Thus began a cycle of drifting from job to job, where he was inevitably sacked for his arrogance, his general attitude and often his affection for alcohol. He lost jobs as a chef and a labourer in quick succession because of this. Despairing, he threw himself into his one positive ray of light in his life, his relationship with Mary, and his infatuation with her intensified, up to the point where despite being unemployed and poor, he had a lavish wedding all planned out for just a few weeks away at Christmas 1971. However, this overbearing infatuation served only to make Mary more uncomfortable with their relationship, and on New Year's Eve 1971, she broke off their engagement and effectively ended their relationship. January 1972 found McGreevy still living at his parents' house, devastated from losing Mary and effectively living as a wastrel. He did not actively seek work, he just lazed around in a depression and he wouldn't help around the house. He was also still abusing alcohol often. Things came to a head after a few months of this, and his parents had finally had enough and threw him out later that year. By mid-1972, McGreevy had moved in as a lodger in the house of an old school friend called Clive Ralph. Clive lived in a two-bedroom house on Gillam Street in Worcester with his young wife Elsie, who was heavily pregnant at that time with the couple's third child. They already had four-year-old Paul and one-year-old Dawn, and in September 1972, Elsie gave birth to Samantha. McGreevy paid the couple £6 a week rent and shared a bedroom with the four-year-old Paul. He regularly helped out with the children or by cooking meals and doing chores around the house while Clive was away working as a long-distance lorry driver. Despite his fondness for alcohol, McGreevy was managing to hold down a factory job and when in March 1973 Elsie found work as a barmaid in the Punchbowl Tavern a couple of miles from the Ralph's home, he spent more and more time looking after the children. He seemed to have perked up and this seemed to be one of the happiest times in McGreevy's life, with locals remembering him as a, being a man who loved children and who was always playing with them in a harmless and non-threatening way and acting in the concerned father figure role. By all accounts, the time McGreevy spent lodging with the Ralphs seems a rare period of stability in his life. Until Friday the 13th of April 1973. Elsie normally worked until closing time at the Punchbowl Tavern in Ronxwood, a suburb of Worcester, and the practice was for Clive to come to pick her up when she had finished her shift. He'd help her close up the pub and do the tidying up, and then he'd have an after-hours pint before the both headed home. 
McGreevy would be at home looking after the Ralph children. This had been the setup and practice for months, and that evening Clive did the same as usual, leaving the sleeping children under the supervision of McGreevy. As usual, McGreevy had been drinking that day. He'd been drinking with a friend in the Bucks Hill pub in Worcester since the early evening, and he'd drunk between five to seven pints of beer. The evening had soured somewhat when McGreevy had been involved in an altercation with his friend after he put out a cigarette in his friend's pint over a disagreement. As they were having words outside which led to a small scuffle, Clive arrived to collect McGreevy and brought him back to Gillam Street to look after the three children while he went to collect Elsie. He left at about 9.30pm. What followed that evening are some of the most horrific, disturbing and unexplained crimes ever committed in British criminal history. At a time never made clear, but estimated to be sometime between 10.15pm and 11.15pm that Friday evening, a still drunk McGreevy lost his temper with the Ralph children. Seven-month-old Samantha awoke and began crying for her bottle, so instead of giving her her bottle, McGreevy began shouting back at her. This of course had no effect in stopping a seven-month-old child from crying, so McGreevy placed his hand over her mouth, and then strangled her. When Samantha had stopped breathing, McGreevy went into the bathroom and returned with a cutthroat razor. He then went on to use the razor to mutilate the seven-month-old child, and caused a compound fracture of her skull by beating her severely. He then turned his attention to the other two children, both of whom were sound asleep, having not stirred through the horror that had just unfolded both of whom were children McGreevy had played with for hours on end, and loved and even bounced on his knee. Two-year-old Dawn was strangled where she lay in her bed, and finally died when McGreevy slit her throat with a razor. The eldest child, Paul, was strangled with curtain wire as he slept. Already the stuff of unimaginable nightmares, worse was yet to follow. After killing the three children, McGreevy mutilated each of their bodies with the razor. Not satisfied with this, McGreevy next went down to the basement of the house and returned upstairs with a heavy pickaxe. He then used this tool to further and horrifically mutilate the three children. But it was his final act that caused hardened detectives to be left sick and shaken, and the one that has helped the name David McGreevy to remain reviled for the past 44 years. Before leaving the house, McGreevy carried the children, one by one, out into the back garden. He then, one by one, impaled each child on the rusted wrought iron pointed spikes of the next door neighbour's fence, and then left them there. Now I've got to stop for a moment here. I mean, can you think of anything so horrific and unimaginable? What depth of hell does someone have to come from to do that? I mean, it's a different level of horror, that, isn't it? Concerned neighbours had heard several bangs and the sound of shouting and of Samantha crying, and noticed a succession of lights in the house being turned on and then off again. The bedroom, then the next bedroom, the bathroom, finally the basement. It caused enough concern with neighbours for the police to be contacted, and a patrol car was dispatched to the scene. Finding no answer at the front door, the officers tried around the back of the house, and it was there by torchlight that they made the most unimaginable discovery ever. 
One experienced officer even vomited at the scene, and all officers who were to attend were left sickened, shaken and traumatised. It was to remain the most traumatic and horrifying crime scene that any of the officers who attended the scene were ever to attend. With such a horrific discovery in the garden, officers forced their way into the house with the obvious impetus being to find the occupants of the house. Officers found it unoccupied, but the upstairs was heavily bloodstained. The search was on for the children's parents, and shaken neighbours who knew the Ralph family told police of Clive and Elsie's routine, and that they would be back shortly as was usual. When Clive and Elsie arrived back home, they were denied access to their house, and were actually never to return to it. They were taken to the police station and questioned, and when it became clear that they had nothing to do with their children's deaths, the Ralphs were told the horror of what had happened. Elsie, when interviewed 40 years later, told of that moment. She said, This is when they told us that there'd been a murder, that was an investigation going on. And that's as far as I can remember really properly, because there was a doctor there at the time because I went hysterical, which you would, and he gave me an injection, and I don't really. I never ever went back to the house. I wasn't allowed because I was screaming, saying that I wanted to go and see my children, and they said we couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed to go to the mortuary. So a police manhunt began and its focus was to find the one person from the Ralph household who was unaccounted for, David McGreevy. McGreevy was located just a few hours later at 3.50am in a nearby road to the murder scene, Lansdowne Road. He was arrested exclaiming, what's all this about? But several hours after his arrest, the normally arrogant and cocksure young man broke down during questioning and admitted to killing the three children, saying, it was all too bloody gruesome. It was me, but it wasn't me. How could I do it? McGreevy then went on to describe the children's deaths in lucid detail. On Paul, I used the wire. Everything just seemed to cave in. I picked up the pickaxe and used it on all of them. Then I went outside and put them on the railings. All I can hear is kids, kids, fucking kids. He then explained how Samantha would not stop crying. I cut off her breath and then went into the bathroom and picked up the razor blade and used it on her. I did the same to Dawn and then I used a piece of curtain wire on Paul. It was impossible to find a motive for the senseless killings. Everyone who knew McGreevy claimed of his love for children and there was never any hint of McGreevy having committed sexual abuse of children or displaying a perverted lust for children in his past. Elsie Ralph could not begin to understand just why McGreevy had committed such a horrific act of slaughter, recalling how he loved to bounce the children up and down on his knee, and he'd spend hours playing with them, and had once even scolded her for the way she chastised Paul, the eldest child. A motive for the children's deaths has still never been explained to this day. McGreevy himself, when asked why he had committed the murders, said simply, that is what I've been trying to figure out. On Monday the 16th of April 1973, McGreevy made the first of ten remand appearances at Muster Magistrates Court, where in a ten-minute hearing he was charged with the murders of the three Ralph children. Local gossip had of course spread like wildfire, and the public gallery of the court was packed, 
unusually for the first time with a predominantly female audience. One reporter covering the story claimed at the time there was a definite atmosphere in the court and if any of the women could have gotten at McGreevy then they would have lynched him. It must have been like the Moores murders trial at Chester's Eases just a few years before. But for all the arrogance he usually displayed, McGreevy cut a pathetic and broken figure in all of his court appearances, barely looking up and around the court as he was remanded in custody. It was just ten weeks after the brutal murders that the trial of David McGreevy began, with him entering a guilty plea. Some of the injuries inflicted on the children were so horrific that the prosecution did not detail them in their case. As McGreevy had offered no plea, no motive and no claim of diminished responsibility, the trial lasted just eight scant minutes. On Monday the 30th of July 1973, David McGreevy was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murders of the three Ralph children. Due to the nature of the exceptionally horrific crimes, the judge, Mr Justice Simon, set the minimum time served at no less than 20 years before McGreevy could even be considered for release. As a child killer, McGreevy has been the subject of much hatred while serving his sentence, and has been attacked and assaulted on several occasions. His cell has been regularly trashed and smashed up, his possessions covered with urine and excrement. He spent a large chunk of his prison years living under the protection of Rule 43, which caters for those prisoners deemed vulnerable or those that need protection for their own safety. But on several occasions over the years, he's been placed in general population or open prison conditions. However, this has always been revoked after an attack or when fellow prisoners have learned of the extent of McGreevy's crimes. He is even reported to have requested this in fear for his own life at times. But at other times... McGreevy is said to have revelled in his notoriety, even reportedly once challenging Moore's murder Ian Brady to a fight to prove which of them was the most notorious killer in Britain. Since being incarcerated, McGreevy has applied for parole on at least nine separate occasions, and each time this has been denied. In 2006, McGreevy was, however, being prepared for parole due to the amount of time he had served and was staying at a bail hostel in Liverpool. It was leaked to the national press that McGreevy had been allowed to walk around Liverpool unsupervised in preparation for release, and his photograph appeared in the local and national newspapers. As his name was once again in the news, knowing the feelings and public outrage that his crimes could still stir up, McGreevy was sent back to prison under closed conditions. In 2009, he tried again in a bid to be moved back to open conditions, this time using human rights laws in an attempt to claim anonymity. This anonymity order was granted and he was only ever referred to as Prisoner M. However, he was told that he would have to remain in closed conditions but would not be named to protect him from the very real likelihood of attack. It also meant that the press were not allowed to report on his applications for parole. This order lasted four years, but was quashed in 2013. By this time, McGreevy had served 40 years in prison, twice his original recommended minimum sentence. When the order was lifted on the 22nd of May 2013, and his identity became known, McGreevy's bed was urinated on and human excrement was smeared on his cell walls. 
He was immediately transferred to closed conditions in a vulnerable prisoners unit in HMP Warren Hill in Suffolk, which since 2014 has run a programme for Category C prisoners such as McGreevy, who cannot move to open conditions. The programme is called the Progression Regime, and is designed to encourage prisoners to take more personal responsibility to produce the evidence which they need to secure release from custody on completion of tariff, according to Ministry of Justice guidelines. As one of the prisoners on this programme, McGreevy enjoys a somewhat relaxed lifestyle for a serving lifer. He has access to his own cooking facilities, and access to a gymnasium and an extensive library. But he is still reported to keep himself to himself, and that nobody in turn speaks to him or bothers with him. He remains there to this day. The horrific nature of his crimes meant that the ripples were and still felt far and wide. Clive and Elsie Ralph divorced not long after the murders. The horror that McGreevy had inflicted upon their lives was too much for their relationship to take. Of Clive there's no record, but when interviewed 40 years later, Elsie, who since remarried and changed her name, still reflected upon her feelings towards McGreevy and how much the monster of Worcester still haunts her every waking moment. He doesn't deserve human rights, he's not even human. I think about what he did every minute of every day because he took my life away. I can't go to family parties anymore, I can't celebrate anything, I can't and will never move on. For what he did to my three children and me, he deserves the same treatment that they got, death. He applied again for parole in 2009 and it was denied, but every time he goes for it I'm terrified they're going to let him out. I won't find peace until he's dead and I am laid to rest with my babies. For crimes so awful, so absolutely horrific, McGreevy's name is surprisingly not a familiar one. I mean, these are crimes that equal the Moore's murders, if not in number, then at least in sheer horror. But would you have known of him? Arguably not. So why is this so? And why isn't McGreevy ranked alongside the likes of Brady and Hindley? A former newspaper reporter, Tony Bishop, who covered the case back in 1973, offers some light upon why this is. In an interview for Crime and Investigation Channel documentary about David McGreevy, Tony Bishop said, In some ways it was quite surreal, because a murder of this horrific nature was one where you might have expected a lengthy hearing. You might have expected a lot of material to come out in the cross-examination of the accused. But of course, because he pleaded guilty, it was over pretty quickly and it was a slightly anticlimactic hearing in one respect. You didn't have the high drama of denials that you'd come across, for example, in the Moores murder case. It's not edged on the national psyche in the way that Brady and Hindley are. Tony Bishop then went on to tell just how much he is still haunted by the horror of what he saw in 1973. He says all he can think of is, We saw these railings, these horrible railings, and the blood was congealed upon the railings. I'm sure the memories of what happened in that house 44 years ago will never leave anyone even remotely connected with it, and as has been explained, public feeling is still massively high even now. The former owner of the house on Gillam Street, retired builder and former publican Michael Jones, lived in the property with his wife Pearl following their wedding in 1967, before they moved out and rented the property to the Ralph family. Still living in the area, 
He summed up both of these points when he was interviewed by a local Worcester newspaper for an article concerning plans to prepare McGreevy for possible release, even as recently as last year. Mr Jones said, That was my first house when I got married, and it comes home to you when you know every inch of that house from living there. McGreevy should never be released. He should be kept in prison until he dies. This is making their family suffer all over again. Every time this comes out it's causing more upset. I would say to McGreevy in straight English, You're a bastard and should be locked up for life. He was no good from the start. I believe he's still a danger. Since the murders we've never been anywhere near the house. Us being married and it being our first house, it sticks in your craw. It makes you feel sick. It is unknown when, indeed if, David McGreevy will ever be released from custody. But even if he is, the life sentence for those affected by the crimes of the monster of Worcester remains never-ending. Is he safe to ever be released? Or is the risk that McGreevy could one day again commit horror on that scale too much? I think the case of the monster of Worcester is one of the most disturbing I've ever come across. I'm certainly not a squeamish person and I never shy away from any gory details. That's never enough to override my fascination. But the case certainly chilled me to the bone when I first read about it some years ago. I believe it's a story that requires telling, and again I cannot offer any apology for bringing to this episode the full details of what happened, however disturbing and horrific. You do not do a story justice if you don't include all of the facts. That's why I placed the advisory before launching into the tale, because I can imagine this case has been a hard one to hear. As I said, it is one from the archives of the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog, and a full account of the case can be found in the archives headed there under the article named The Monster of Worcester. Now, it does contain reproduced photographs of McGreevy after his arrest and attending court, contains photographs of all of the Ralph children, as well as the crime scene as well. I have to stress they are in no way graphic pictures, My own sensitivity and sense of responsibility would prevent me from ever putting up anything so disturbing such as that. But if I was hearing this case as a listener, then I'd be checking out all I could about the case. My interest would be piqued and I'd be curious to see all I could about it. I find it helps you gain a sense of context when you can visualise places and faces. So check out McGreevy. He doesn't look like the devil you'd expect him to. He looks like a normal young man at the time even a bit pathetic and a bit shell-shocked by the horror of what he's committed. And by pleading guilty, as Tony Bishop says, there's no drawn-out trial and no trial-of-the-century sensationalism that comes with other cases such as the Moores murderers or the Yorkshire Ripper. The case lasted just eight minutes. There's no record of McGreevy ever being placed in a secure hospital during the 44 years he spent incarcerated. Indeed, the only record of him ever having any kind of psychiatric evaluation, apart from when he was a young rating back in the 1960s following the arson charge, is in 1996. It was then that McGreevy voluntarily undertook an extensive psychological review to determine whether there had been a sexual element to his crimes. This is reportedly the only in-depth examination of this type he has had, Yet he must have had some sort of examination to be found fit to be able to plea at his trial in 1973. He confessed after short questioning and didn't seem to understand why he had acted how he had. Was this a psychosis or a drink-fuelled rampage? 
Either way, you would expect him to have had psychiatric evaluation. The sheer magnitude of the crimes must have demanded this, surely. I have depicted in as much a way as I could the sheer horror of the crimes, and they are disturbing enough, I think. Yet the full extent of the horror he inflicted has never been made public, deemed too disturbing to reveal. That boggles the mind. I mean, that's horrible enough what we've heard. Imagine what is so disturbing that you can never reveal it. I'll try to think. These are surely not the actions of someone in the same mind, are they, though? To do that to anybody would be horror enough, but to three infants. It appears that the root cause of what drove McGreevy to commit the atrocities he did that day has never been established or explained. And if McGreevy himself claims to this still to this day that he doesn't know, and this hasn't been addressed, then is the problem still there, and it's had more than 40 years to fester. Again, if McGreevy is released, and he's not subject to the whole life tariff that so many of the most infamous killers in British criminal history are, so this is a distinct possibility after serving so long in prison, then what kind of life would he come out to? This is a man who went into prison a relatively immature young man who had a drink problem and I believe a very real personality disorder. His only real defining moment in life has been to have committed some of the most horrendous crimes ever heard in a British courtroom. He spent his near entire adult life imprisoned, more often than not under strict Rule 43 conditions, isolated from other prisoners for his own safety. The world has long changed since McGreevy was imprisoned in the early 70s, and it may daunt him to be released. The sensationalist media reporting wouldn't help either, as undoubtedly this would lead to cast a wave of public fury about the newest member of whatever community McGreevy was released into. There are options. For example, it may be possible McGreevy could be released under a different identity, as has happened with high-profile cases before and concerning names such as Maxine Carr, Karen Matthews and even Thompson and Venables spring to mind as examples where this has happened. Although at least in the case of Venables, it provenly hasn't stopped him offending. Would this work in the case of David McGreevy, or is he destined to live out his days in prison, still paying for his horrific actions that night in April 1973? What do you think, guys, then, about the monster of Worcester? Isn't it the most horrendous and shocking case? It's undoubtedly the most horrific we've had on the podcast to date, and I can understand if it's been an episode that's been hard to listen to, but I do hope you manage to stick with it. I know any case featuring children is a sensitive one, and I have to stress that I do not choose cases to sensationalise and shock, but nor do I shy away from a difficult case to either research or depict. As I've echoed here earlier, this will probably not be a familiar case to many people, and it is one that I believe should be widely known. There'll be the now standard discussion thread about McGreevy's crimes on the Facebook True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group. Still a bit of a mouthful, that. So please feel free to air your views on the subject. It's an open forum as per norm, and I'd love to hear what you think. Just once again that there is a full account of the case on the archives of the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog, so if anyone would like to head over there to recap, that's where you'll find it. You'll even check out some visuals concerning the case. I will be back next week with another episode. There's no such thing as a nice crime, of course, but I promise that it won't be a shocking case as McGreevy's, although I do hope you find it an entertaining and interesting one. 
You can also reach me on the usual social media platforms if you want to follow me and you don't already. Or not, no press gang in here whatsoever. And please feel free to leave that all-important iTunes review. Believe me guys, this really all does help. So I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, signing off here by wishing you all a happy and safe week. And next week, I'll be there. I hope you can join me too. Take care, thanks very much, and goodbye for now.